Hello and welcome to episode 208 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fan's weekly podcast of many topics. I'm Mike Solosi, but I'm only half of the mics uh, on the podcast today, because joining me is Mike Salbato. Yes, hello. You may know me from websites such as RPGFan.com. And joining Mike and I is uh, RPG Fan Reviews editor Jonathan Logan. Hello. So, uh, listeners, you might notice that the subtitle for today's episode is Link's Awakening Revisited. And uh, that's for a couple different reasons. First of all, this episode, this episode is all about Link's Awakening, the uh, Game Boy classic Zelda title from 1993. And also... This isn't the first time we're talking about it. We did a Link's Awakening episode that was just me and uh, and Chris, who has since left the website, back in April of 2018 is when that episode posted as part of Zelda Month. But uh, more, you know, uh, more current to Link's Awakening is that it very recently received a remake on the Nintendo Switch, and that remake was beautiful and well-received and I think worth discussing. So we are going to revisit Link's Awakening with a new panel, talk about why this game is cool and interesting and and we love it, and also have do so in context of this new Switch remake. So, um, uh, rolling the clock back to 1993, gentlemen, um... Let's talk. What are, what's your background with the original Link's Awakening, and how much do you like or love it? Uh, starting with you, Mike. Um, a lot. It, it, Link's Awakening has always actually been near the top of my favorite Zelda games. It, it, it was kind of interesting at the time, like going from because you know I'm 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 old enough that of course I played it in 1993. So we we saw like this progression of Zelda from the first two, and then you got to Super Nintendo, and then visually, anyway, it. It it almost seemed backwards to go to Game Boy after that, but I I loved that game so much. You know, it, it was anyone who had the original Game Boy knows the pain of trying to play in a car at night. Hmm. You know, where you had the little the little light things, or you try to like catch a street light as you went by. But I, I could not put this game down when I played it back then. And you mentioned going from the SNES to the Game Boy. Uh, uh, Link's Awakening began life as a intended port of A Link to the Past, but very early in development, they quickly made it into something different. Um, and some elements that they wanted in Link to the Past ended up uh, being first done in Link's Awakening, like like uh, the, the visual of a mountain with an egg on top and the idea of having a dungeon inside the mouth of a giant, uh, of a giant fish were things that they had sort of penciled in for, Link's, uh, for A Link to the Past, but ended up sort of moving over into Link's Awakening. But I, th- I think we even mentioned that in the <laughs> previous Link's Awakening episode 18 months ago, which I didn't re-listen to for this podcast, but maybe I should have. Uh, Jonathan, um, what's your background with Link's Awakening? Uh, pretty much the same. I mean, I got, my, I, I got my start with Zelda on the NES. I used to go over to my best friend's place, and he had a copy of the Golden Cartridge, and we used to play it, and mm-hmm. never really getting anywhere. And then the SNES came out, and uh, Link to the Past, I just devoured it as a kid. Um and then when I was in, I think it was Zeller's back then, I saw the box and asked my mom for it. And she knew much, how much I liked uh, the other Legend of Zeldas, so she got it, and I got it for Game Boy. And it was uh, quickly one of my favorite games, certainly my favorite game on that system. Right on. And, well, my story is pretty similar to both of yours. Uh, I, I guess we're all around the same age, at least in our uh, late 20s or early 30s. My first Zelda game was the first Zelda uh, for the NES, and I didn't have a Super Nintendo until late. But I always, but I had a Game Boy very early, and I, uh, I, I, I think 
Link's Awakening was the first Zelda game I finished. And it was really what kickstarted my uh, my enjoyment of the Zelda series the most over the years. It was, uh, I, I think after I finished it, I finally got a Super Nintendo and got to play Link to the Past for myself. And then played the other ones on Game Boy, and uh, I, I never had an N64. So for many years, my Zelda experience was the was a Link to the Past and the three uh, Zelda games for the Game Boy. And I, I don't think I played this the year it came out. It probably wasn't until 94 or 95. But it took me over a year to finish because I was stuck at Eagle's Tower for something like something like uh, six or seven months. Oh yeah. In my in my defense, I think I was eight or nine years old, and um, it didn't. And it and I met a a school friend who was oddly enough a lifelong friend uh, who I've known for more than twenty years, and we became friends in fourth grade because we were both stuck in Link's Awakening and would help each other with it. Uh, and then that and that same friend a few years later when we were both in middle school we bought uh, opposite versions of the two uh, um, Oracle games for the Game Boy Color and the, and then we traded co- we traded copies to play the second half of the story. Oh, that's uh, awesome! Yeah, oh, that's great. I, I think we both eventually got our own copies of the game we were missing, but um, that is how I first played them. I, uh, I played Oracle of Seasons and then traded for her a copy of Oracle of Ages, and we would talk about it in the homeroom every day. So anyway, like that—that that is my first few years of Zelda fandom uh, on the on the uh, on the Game Boy. And Link's Awakening is very special to me. It's not my favorite Zelda game, but it's certainly in my top four or five. And it's it's so it, it does a few things that are so unique and weird, even. Uh, even looking back at it 25 plus years ago, that it 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 feels pretty special. And um, because it had been so long, like I guess, what is it? Something like uh, my math might be off, but is it 26 years since the Game Boy version, and then maybe 21 years since the uh, since the Game Boy Color DX version? Does that sound DX about right? Version. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, so I, I think that this remake was warranted. It's not like they did a remake two years after it came out. And this remake is also really cool and beautiful. Oh, it's great. Something about the Zelda series like gets people really talking when there's a new visual style that some people really love it and some people don't. It happened with Wind Waker. Um, I think it's great. I, I think the, the miniature look works really well for this world. People compared the uh, sprite look to Fisher-Price toys. And while I get that, it's also <laughs> really, really cute. <laughs> And yeah. uh, and uh, and a very expressive and uh, the, the way from the sprites move to the uh, to even the way that the scenes transition uh, feels just I, I don't know it, it's very appealing to me and maybe the most appealing of all is they've barely changed anything this is this is this preserves the content of the original pretty remarkably it's very surprising yeah it's an interesting approach. Like, they, like block for block, it is the same game. Yeah, block for block style. and and dungeon room for dungeon room, it's the same game except there are a few more hidden items like seashells and heart pieces. And I think the content, the contents of a few chests have changed. Other than that, and the the Dompe's, uh, um dungeon building side quest, I, I think nothing else has changed. Uh, um, at, at least visually and with items on the screen, there's there have been mechanical mechanical changes, and. Uh, and, and there's 360 degree motion and uh, important things like that, but just content wise and and, and, and placement wise, it's almost exactly the same. What I find remarkable about that too is when playing through the game, it it has a ton of content. This doesn't feel like a bare bones game, and it came out on Game Boy in 1993. And the amount of con it really puts in perspective that just the amount of content they shoved into that cartridge 
way, way, way back then that it still today holds up as, wow, this is a full-fledged game. Yeah, it's eight and a half dungeons, and probably in the, uh, I don't know, 13 to 15 hours range if you, uh, if you don't really go berserk collecting everything. But, but, and, uh, but this is a dense game for being 1993. And again, playing it in 2019, it still felt dense. Like, and, uh, and it does, it, um, it does the classic Zelda thing of you can feel uh, the world expand a little bit every time you uh, reach a new story point or get a new item that lets you travel further. Right, right. And yeah, and uh, I think that Link's Awakening communicates that really well. It's like, oh, now I have the rock's feather. Now I can finally jump over all these pits I've been seeing. Oh, it's such a great mechanic. Yeah, it, it's it, like Zelda sort of maybe originated it. Uh, uh, like Miyamoto said that when he made Mario, he wanted to make a game about getting to a goal quickly. And when he made Zelda, he wanted to make a game about exploring a space and 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 uh, and progressing sort of like non-linearly instead of linearly and i think that concept is done very well in in many of the zelda games but in link's awakening in particular does like a super good job of it like uh, even just going from i don't know like pegasus boots to hookshot to flying rooster you just you feel that the pits that you can traverse across go right grow wider and wider and uh, right. I don't want—I don't want to use the M word, but many Metroid and Castlevania games sort of uh, like um, borrowed that idea of nonlinear exploration in a in a way that I think is also pretty powerful. Um, but back to what's changed in the remake, I think uh, that the visual upgrade is astounding. Uh, like uh, just like asset to asset, everything looks just really colorful and beautiful. Uh, people are sort of complaining about it being too cute, but. People complained about Wind Waker, and then three years later, everyone uh, wished that there, there were more games like Wind Waker. So I'm not, exactly. I'm not worried. Yeah, I'm not worried about that. I think the criticism about that's going to die off pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, it's what amazes me about it is just how okay, you, you Fisher Price toy. I don't think it quite looks that that kitty, but just how alive the world seems while at the same time being so artificial and and sculpted is kind of amazing to me. They did an amazing job with the uh, visual design in this, unlike any other game I can really think of. Right. It, I'm sure we probably all did this to some extent, but I, I spent some time inside a lot of the houses. Like, there's a, so much detail in the houses now, which I think is really neat. Like, just stuff on sitting on tables in the corner, and it, it's it's really cool. Oh, yeah. It was already a game that was packed full of Easter eggs, and they just shoved even more of them into the Switch version. It's crazy. Yeah, there's fewer empty spaces, even little details like uh, just the way the grass moves and the way that there's uh, small details like just things moving in the background. When you run into when you Pegasus boot charge into the wall of a house, like things on tables will shake too instead of just having the screen rattle in an artificial way. Uh, oh shoot, I didn't see that actually. It, it, I don't think it, I don't think it's true of every single asset, but at, at least it was like something on Mister Wright's desk. I think moved. Um, but uh, there's also an, uh, a you know, a lot of remixed audio in addition to the visual upgrade because uh, I think that I mean, maybe music was is more important to Ocarina of Time than any other game within the series. But the, but I was really excited to hear a new arrangement or at least a new instrumentation of Ballad of the Windfish because I think that's one of the signature music pieces of the whole series. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean this is the game that introduced the flute. If I unless I miss my guess. Nope. Um. Uh, a lot. Um. Link to the past did, and uh, it, it's oh, called. Of course, it did. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. 
Yeah, it's, for it's that. called they call it flute in uh in the in a link to the past, but it's clearly an ocarina. So this is this is the second game with an ocarina, but the ocarina is more important to Link's Awakening than it is to a Link to the Past because you Ballad, actually get songs. Yeah, yeah, you actually get multiple songs, and uh, and Ballad of the Windfish is extremely important to the plot of the story. Even though, even though the other two songs are great too, it's um <laughs> when you learn the mambo uh, mambo's mambo from the giant mambo fish, <laughs> just the way his eyes spin when he's performing. Oh yes. Yeah, oh, so, this game is so weird with its goofy details. But oh, and, but uh, if, if the the music changes are important, I'm, and we're going to talk about Battle of the Windfish soon. But there's also a couple mechanical changes I didn't mention. Uh, there's more warp points because in the in the yeah. old version in the old version, if you played Mambo's song, you could use it to escape from a dungeon or tra- teleport to the pond. And then there was four warp points that you could sort of cycle between by jumping into. But they they added more. I think now there's six or seven warp points. I might have even missed one or two. And uh, you when you play Monbo's song, you can teleport to the pond or any of those let's say seven warp points. And that that just makes uh, fast travel a lot easier and better. But maybe most important all, of all the mechanical changes is uh, uh, the Switch has I don't know ten or twelve surface buttons instead of the Game Boy's four. Yes, exactly. And uh, maybe the most annoying or frustrating part of the original. Link's Awakening is having to switch between your items attached to the A and B buttons often. Like, uh, I don't know, you would have to equip the Pegasus Boots and the Rock's Feather to jump across a pit of three. That would leave you defenseless to deal with enemies on the other side, so you would maybe pause, switch to Shield and Sword, or or Sword and Bow or something, and then deal with the enemies. Uh, With the button layout here, you have your action button A communicating um, the power bracelet, among other things. And then you have your sword permanently on B, your shield permanently on R, and your Pegasus boots permanently on L. And then your X and Y buttons freed up for the uh, for the other for the other tools. So, what in, with the Game Boy version, you can never have more than two items equipped at the same time. But under normal circumstances, you'll have six plus equipped at the same time on the Switch version, and that just makes everything way easier. Back on the Game oh, yeah. Boy, what were your uh, what were your usual item setups like? Uh, oh. Your default. Um, it was rocks, feather, and sword. Um, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. The, just the ability to jump offensively or defensively. Uh, you could jump to the rear of an enemy that had, had an armored front. Uh, pits were very common uh, obstacles, so just being able to jump around felt natural and useful. And, and the sword is not the most powerful weapon in the game, but it's a, a like it's sort of your staple weapon. Yeah, it's dangerous to go alone. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, I applaud them for what they did on the Game Boy One. Like that was pretty inventive because oh, yeah. the thing they could have done was left the sword it, it, and it, it, it one a, item that can swap out yeah it, it wasn't a bad system but i mean it like uh it felt less and less okay you know as you get further away from 1993 <laughs> and uh right and, and, and having this system which is not that different from a link to the past or a link between worlds um like it felt like a very logical change and even though it makes the game e- easier uh it just it just makes you feel more powerful and the game feel more modern it's it's awesome Right. You don't have to go into the menu nearly as much, which is yeah. great. I have to say I love the menu in this game. It's, I mean, it's interesting to me how they, they – very reminiscent of Breath of the Wild, how the menu uh, design is in the remake version. Right. They've really, they've really uh, taken that design language and put it on top of Link's Awakening, which I think was smart. Yeah, I think they've gotten better and better with menu economy as the Zelda series go goes on. Like, uh, even the Zelda games I don't love from the 2000s, uh, mostly thinking about spirit tracks here, 
Like, like <laughs> even, uh, even in those, the menu design is always very, very logical, filling most of the screen and making it very easy to go between uh, managing your inventory to viewing your quest items to viewing your save load detail stuff. Like, uh, Zelda has always been good at menus, and this is just a another good Zelda menu. Right. Oh, one other thing they added to links to the links that we're getting remake that I didn't mention before, where uh, you get bottles in this game. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, I'll admit that I did die twice due to foolish mistakes, but it's not really the hardest game. So for the most part, you probably don't need them, but it's a neat addition and it makes it feel more in line with the other Zeldas now. You have to be careful though; bottles don't auto revive you in this one. That's true. Yeah, um, you do get the auto revive uh, ointment. From, oh shoot, uh, what's her name? Crazy Tracy. Tracy, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and uh, but basically, the, it's, it's just an extra means to heal. And the, the game already had fairies and many uh, large and and small fairies in this game. So just, you know, almost every other Zelda game has bottles. They just added some bottles to, in in normal, un- easy to understand places. I I didn't object to it. No. I kind of do object to that uh, to having to play some Dompe mini games to get one of them though. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I haven't I'm, finished all those yet. Oh, I haven't. I, I've done maybe about half of them. I I just got a heart piece from one, and, and I decided, you know what, this is enough. I, uh, I I hope there aren't any, you know, ultimate items near the end of the side quest because I'm basically done. It's, I have to admit that was a bit. Uh, that was a bit of a sad point for me. Is when the 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 big reward for the seashells. Uh, being a uh, being a tile for oh it is oh, it yeah. is oh, oh my gosh. it's a tile the the second item is the better sword yeah I got that that far at least I I didn't get that. I got about oh shoot I got about twenty five or thirty secret seashells and I know mm-hmm. if, if I if I put in more of an effort I could have gotten enough for the sword because I think in the original there was twenty five or thirty and then for this game they there are fifty total. Yeah, but none of them are missable this time, which is yeah, nice. Yes, it's a little bit more sensibly designed that way. I, I, but I didn't explore enough to get the sword. Um, I, again, I think I was probably high 20s at the end of the game. But uh, that is a bit of a bummer that it's just more tiles for level 50. They, they, should, have, yeah. they should have done a little it, bit better. I think they really overestimated the popularity of this particular feature to the point where they were like, okay, the big reward has to be you know, the thing that makes the dungeon editor even better. Instead of the sword, which everyone wants. Everyone wants a better sword as your yeah, ultimate Exactly. And, and I truth, mean, truthfully, I don't hate this dungeon editor. It's a really great idea because, uh, again, the, the, uh, the, dungeons in, the dungeons in this game are all square blocks that you can arrange in, you know, some insane polygon <laughs> in, the, in, uh, in a map. So making a dungeon editor to Frankenstein dungeon uh, rooms together I think is a neat idea, and it's, and it's worth exploring, but... Um, but having, but but like the it just became tedious going through those challenges, yeah. And, and having and having some meaningful content locked between uh, behind those challenges, like uh, like seashells and heart pieces, and I think one bottle, that was a bit of a bummer because like it, it it's it's cool it's fun to mess around in the dungeon editor, but it's way less fun to do. Oh, I don't know, seven to twelve of those challenges in the dungeon editor. You guys have you guys ever seen the Game Maker's Toolkit Boss Keys series? No. Oh, it's so good. It's just uh, this guy, he he delves into every single Zelda game and explores the dungeon. And he breaks down the dungeon into, like, different different things. There's a, uh, I can't remember one of, there's a gauntlet, there's a puzzle box. But the problem, I feel, with the dungeon editor in this is it just makes every single dungeon into a gauntlet. There's no 
key items. There's no there's no way there's no uh, flow to the dungeons. It's literally just you start at the beginning, you plow through until you get to the very end of it, and you beat a boss you've already beaten. But there's no so new al- item. Almost, um, almost. They count the number of locks you have, and uh, yeah. And so your first X number of chests will always be the number of keys in the dungeon, and the final chest will always be the nightmare key. So you have to collect every chest, and then and then you know just hustle to the end, which is. A pattern that that again is, does not have the richness of, and design detail of of having a key dungeon tool that you have to find that d- defines the other work in your dungeon, or or even a uh, yeah, or, or even something like a link between worlds, which does not have items hidden in dungeons, but does have uh, but does have you know each dungeon themed yeah. around the use of a certain item. There's no there's no key mechanic in these dungeons. I mean, you can occasionally put in a switch if you want to switch the blue and orange. Uh, uh, blockades but that's pretty much the extent of uh yeah you have you have locked doors staircases and the orange and blue switch that's that's about it i mean i guess the puzzle is putting the dungeon together uh according to the uh criteria given but once and actually to be honest i found that part a little bit fun i kind of liked that part but then eventually it was just become oh i gotta play through this dungeon and it would be mismatched and it would be like you said frankenstein together there'd be no central mechanic there would be no theme it was just random room random room random room until you get to the boss and you've already beaten the boss and you've already yeah. beaten every room in that dungeon before i mean it's it's again it's it's a fun idea and it's fun to play around with it a little bit but yeah. having but having a and it's it's not mandatory at all which is the right choice but still having um collectibles that people will want locked behind doing several of these challenges i think made it less fun um, and it's really the only major content change in the game that isn't related to mechanics or menus, excuse me, or, or collectibles. So, like, I, I don't, I'm not saying I wanted more out of this remake, because I think the visual and audio upgrade is, uh, is more than enough, and, um, and, and the mechanical upgrade is a, is practically a revelation, but I, I don't know, I, I, d- I just don't have the most love for this, uh, for the Danpei side quest. I'm really hoping it doesn't actually throw Nintendo off the idea of creating a full-fledged uh, Zelda maker. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the that's the brilliant point. Mario Maker is that you actually have access to everything, everything in a Mario game, so you can create your own levels. Whereas this is nothing like that. This is you're just piecing, to, like you said, Frankensteining together. Pre-made, already yeah. played, pre-made blocks. So I don't, I, I, I have trouble of thinking about this as a Zelda maker, even prototype. No, no, it, it's not a. It, it, it's a Link's Awakening dungeon editor, not a true Zelda maker. Uh, yeah. It, like, and if, if they made a Zelda dungeon maker that was, I don't know, to the level of detail and and uh, and creativity of what people can do with Mario Maker, that that would be a real mind blow of a game and something I'd be very interested in. And I and I I, I shy away from sort of um like like cr- content creation games like that. This will baffle Mike and I apologize in advance, but I'm I'm a I'm a big Dragon Quest fan and I'm just not interested in building games, so I haven't even played a, a Dragon Quest Builders game for thirty minutes. Uh but because huh. it, 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 just because this kind of game is and I've also never played Minecraft. This kind of game just doesn't interest me a ton. But I mean Zelda Dungeon Maker that would that would tip the scale a little bit. <laughs> but it, but this is not a true Zelda Dungeon Maker. This is a Link's Awakening dungeon editor that is sort of foisted into a side quest that isn't always fun. No, a dungeon I mean, remixer. Sure, yeah. dun- dungeon mixer. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, Zelda dungeon and, mixer. That's I mean, like, thank you. That's like, that's like oh. the free version of dungeon maker. You have to you have to pay for the mixer to maker upgrade. 
it's funny. It didn't, although I agree with you 100%, it was, you know, it was tedious and there were a few unlockables behind it. It thankfully didn't really hurt my enjoyment of the game at all because there's already so much in Link's Awakening that I oh, didn't yeah. feel like, I didn't feel like, oh, I, I need to 100% this and get this done. Like I could un- I could 100% everything else and still get a feeling of accomplishment. Yeah, I, I didn't feel let down by the by the Dampe side quest. I just, uh, you know, I only had so much stamina for it. And after I did a couple things and got a couple collectibles, I decided I was done. And and, th- and that was fine. But it's just, I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's not the fully realized dungeon maker that I think some people may want. And it, as a side quest, I, it didn't hold my interest for that long. I, I don't. I don't want to seem too down on this because of one side quest, one optional side quest even. Uh, yeah. But it's sort of funny. We're mentioning how the dungeons are all compo- composed of square blocks, and that's that was true in the Game Boy original and the Switch remake. But the in the Game Boy original, the overworld was always also entirely square blocks. But for the remake, they make it a little bit more fluid. Like the um, you sort of sm- semi smoothly transition from space to space in the Switch remake that used to be a like a, a block by block arrangement in the Game Boy version and um there's some I, I don't not really load times but like some tearing and some slowdown when you transition scenes yeah and, and they, I, I and I played this game at least 80% handheld but uh that that was the that was the most technical difficulties I ever encountered in the in the they, my whole they play wanted this, they just wanted a spiritual successor to the screen like freezing and like jumping over right like <laughs> Oh yeah, it was it was a uh, it was a built-in limitation. <laughs> they wanted this to feel slightly slow and janky, even though it's 2019. No, no, I, I, they probably wanted it to be perfectly seamless, and it just isn't totally seamless. But I, I don't know. I, I've, that's the biggest complaint I've heard just on, from the online um, chatter surrounding Link's Awakening. But you know, we, we've talked a lot about the remake and the new stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the old stuff. Uh, Link's Awakening both in, in, in every version of the game. Again, the Switch, the Switch remake is very faithful. Uh, Link is on a voyage for undetermined reasons and ends up washed out, uh, sorry, washed ashore the island of Koholint, which I think I accidentally called Kolohint at least eight times in the first, ver- in the first episode that we did 18 months ago. <laughs> it's Koholint. Um, and uh, on Koholint Island, he meets a, uh, a young woman named Marin and a bunch of other people living in Mabe Village, and also an owl that tells him that the only way to escape the island is to wake the windfish. And the isle- and this owl guides Link through uh, exploring the island and uh, conquering its eight key dungeons, at the end of which each dungeon has a musical instrument, with the idea of forming an octet of these musical instruments to play in front of a giant egg on top of a mountain, which is, again, a very striking key visual <laughs> in this game. Uh, and then, you know, entering the egg to um, wake up the sweeping, the sleeping, well, the sweeping, he's, it's very dirty inside that egg, to, to wake the sleeping windfish. Um, I, I think this is maybe less of a shock now than it was uh, when I was eight or nine playing this game in 1994 or 95, but a, a, as you... Uh, play through the game and speak to both the monsters, the monsters and the human denizens of Koholint, they say some sort of sort of suspicious things. Like the, uh, the monsters will be like, no, no, you can't end this. No, if, when the windfish wakes up, everything is going to be gone. And then the, and the villagers are thinking things like, outside the island, what do you mean outside the island? And uh, what, what do you mean when the windfish wakes? The windfish has always been asleep. And you sort of realize that you're trapped in some kind of dream, but to break free... Uh, the dream will disappear just like when you dream as a, as a person, the dream that you had sort of disappears and becomes forgotten, which puts a little bit of a pall 
over the whole game. Like it, 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 and this isn't a late game revelation right before the final boss. You start hearing this around, I don't know, the dungeon three or four or five range, right? Something like that. I mean, the, like the big, big reveal is before dungeon six, but there's some like hints before that. When you're in the ruins, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the ruin, the uh, the ruins before the face shrine. But the, right. the the bosses that you meet comment like that uh, before it becomes more explicit in the. Uh, in the space between Dungeon 5 and Dungeon 6, but I, I remember thinking, uh, being more shocked by this in <laughs> when, when I was a kid, where now there's obviously more breadcrumbs around, but this is... Isn't that a sort of a dark and weird concept for a 1993 Game Boy game? Or am I, am, am I like... Oh. <laughs> am I looking at, uh, at the world of 26 years ago a little bit too fondly? <laughs> I mean, when you look at the other three uh, Zelda games that came before this, obviously you know, pretty light on plot. And although they did expand it greatly with uh, Link to the Past, it's still a pretty traditional, uh, you know, rescue Zelda. And then they took a really hard left in this and just threw in a lot of story that was there. Um, yeah, no, no Zelda in this game. And Ganon is sort of emulated but never mentioned as part of the final boss. And uh, But it, it's weird, a Zelda game with no Zelda and no, and no true Ganon. No. And uh, and kind of a, a narrator type of character who, you know, guides you through the game, uh, where that really wasn't the case in any of the other ones, the Owl. Uh, yes, Mr. Owl, who is right. has interesting ideas on how to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop. <laughs> but, uh, and Which really... I, I'm going to say the best Owl, because future Owls never trusted you to understand anything they said mm. and made you listen to them repeated times when yeah. you accidentally hit the wrong thing. This, this was... owl was like, here, I'm just going to tell you something, and I know you're going to understand it. And also you can, both in the old version and the new version, although it's easier in the new version, uh, you could go and by going to the map area where you met uh, the owl, you can repeat parts of dialogue if, if there was anything that you forgot. And, and I also should mention the uh, the map in the Switch version, they add a lot more details. You can even, like zoom in on, on finer details on what was in a previous dungeon room and what was in a, a previous area of the overworld. Uh, in, in, in the Catfish Maw dungeon, you have to fight this, uh, this Master Salphos mini-boss four times. And in the old version of the game, you can only know which room to go in by the number of, of discolored tiles in that room. Like, like, like the, the third time you fought him, you had to go to right. the room with three oh, tiles. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and that's true in the Switch version as well, but in the Switch version, once you have the dungeon map, you can go around, you can just look at the map and and, uh, and see the a, a miniature version of each room. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah. And, uh, and, and look it up that way. It's just, there's just more sensible navigation and more breadcrumbs in the, uh, to follow in the Switch version. But back to the owl. I, I think this is probably the best owl in Nintendo history until Rowlet was introduced <laughs> in 2017. Or maybe it was 2016. My... Uh, the Zelda and Pokemon timelines are crossing, but uh, like the narrative, the narrative was felt sophisticated and even a little dark for a 1993 Game Boy game, and especially given how how little dialogue there was in the game itself, it communicated a very complex uh, moral quandary. Uh, yeah, there, with there's very little effort, really. Yeah, there's. Uh, I don't want to say I don't want to say little dialogue. I think there's maybe more dialogue in this game than in The Link to the Past. Uh, actually, that's probably untrue. But this seems a little dialogue heavy for a Game Boy game, and there's definitely, but it's it's definitely more story than I was used to seeing in a Zelda game. 
Yeah. I, I think that's what's really surprising because we keep saying for a Game Boy game, but right. You know, because at the time when something came over to Game Boy, obviously they had to compromise a lot of things. So we we were used to seeing things like kind of like stripped down to like just their essentials on Game Boy, and somehow they they actually upped the story from you know even over the Super Nintendo game. Yeah. Like Link's just, Awakening. That was oh. not something we expected on a handheld. Well, Link's Awakening then. feels like a sequel. It doesn't feel like a port. It doesn't feel like a, a, a shrunken down version. It feels like a genuine sequel to the mechanics and everything that makes Link to the Past so good. Right. Yeah, Link to the Past, I think, was a bit of a bigger game. Just just, just because of the like, number of dungeons and map size and things of, and like what you would call quote-unquote content in a Zelda game. But, but Link's Awakening fit right in alongside the others because I mean it was like Zelda one and two in that there were eight dungeons, and uh, and a lot of items and uh, and a lot of items to collect. But it felt more sophisticated than the previous three Zelda games because of this weird tone and focus to the story that was unlike any of the previous three. It's uh, um, it, it's as content rich and detailed as any of the previous Zelda games, just with you know concessions made here. Or changes made here because of the limitations of the Game Boy, but it's—I mean—it was breathtaking, and uh, and beloved in you know either maybe because of maybe in spite of its Game Boy status, and I think the Switch version is um, like basically just proves this game was awesome all along, but now it's maybe more appealing and more accessible because of these mechanical and visual changes, which which hmm. makes me all the more all the happier for the Switch games because I. I'm thinking of maybe one one journalist in particular. I think some people avoided the original Game Boy Link's Awakening because it was on the Game Boy. Because they either are they're averse to games with 2D graphics or black and white graphics or Game Boy games in general. That excuse is gone now. And uh, a, a lot of people are re-experiencing a lot of positive nostalgia from this Switch remake. And maybe some people are discovering this game for the first time because they... Because it's in a it's in a on a very current system and they have fewer hangups to get in their way, but I mean Could I'm speaking be. I'm speaking in a little bit of a bubble here because uh, I mean all three of us love the original version and the new version of this game. This is this is well, not a uh, uh, this is not a roast podcast. This is a celebratory podcast. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, did you? I'm I'm just curious. Did either of you uh, pull out the original Link's Awakening after you finished the Switch version just to play around with it a little bit? No, I I played the original Link's Awakening about a year and a half ago for this oh, yeah, podcast. Of course. So so it was, it was pretty fresh in my memory. It was pretty cool. My uh my partner, she has a she still has a Game Boy Color and she has a copy of Link's Awakening DX. So uh I pulled it out of a drawer and I started playing it. I discovered that she her save file was in uh her save file was in um, Eagle's Tower. Oh boy. You know, your your favorite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Woohoo. Um I mean, I I was able to beat Eagles Tower in an afternoon this time, but I, it, it gave me so many problems <laughs> as a child that I have a bit of a complex about it. I'm not going to deny it. No, it's a con- and, like I'm not. It, it, it's a and, it's uh, the trickiest dungeon in the game by far. And and Turtle yeah. Rock, I think, is maybe uh, maybe it's a more intense dungeon, just because there's you know there's more rooms and the the gimmick of that is just remembering which staircases are which and uh, and finding the one switch room that you have to deal with. It, it's it's. I, I don't know. I, I think it's maybe more. I think Turtle Rock challenges your dexterity more, and Eagle's Tower challenges your your puzzle solving ability more. And I, it was just a little much for me as an eight year old in 1994. <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah. Uh, but the, 
cool thing about this was, I mean, I just started the game up and it was at the end of the game. So I was Link. I had almost all of my power-ups and uh, all of my items. And it felt like the same game. Um, there were the, you know, the slight annoyances, like having to unequip my uh, sword and shield and re-equip other weapons. But it was, it still felt very, it, it still felt, the tone of it was the exact same. It was still fun. Um, it actually amazed me because as I was playing the remake, sometimes you play a, sometimes you play a remake and you kind of like, oh, this is exactly how I remember it. But the reality is, it's not exactly how you remember it. It's you're you're kind of you're kind of looking at the game through nostalgia goggles, and they've upgraded things. But in this particular case, the original still holds up exceptionally well, in my opinion. Um, I was having as much fun playing well, as much fun as playing through Eagles Tower as you possibly could playing through Eagles Tower uh, uh, on the Game Boy uh, Color as I was on the Switch. Now I didn't play. I you know I beat the dungeon, and that was pretty much it. But it, it was just an interesting uh, experience going back and seeing where it came from. Also, it gave me some hope because it means that I can still play Oracle of Season in Ages without thinking, oh, this is tedious. Yeah, I also played Oracle of Seasons and Oracle of Ages last year. I uh, I played one new Zelda game for the first time and replayed six others <laughs> in 2018. Um, uh, about half before and half after that Zelda month that we recorded for the podcast. And uh, interestingly... Um, I did replay Link's Awakening DS on my old Game Boy Advance, but uh, for the two Oracle games, uh, and, and this is available for Link's Awakening DX as well, but I, I, I didn't do that, you can get them on the 3DS eShop. And um, that is maybe the best way to play them in 2019 because it's a, a really nice back, big backlit screen that preserves the colors very well. And I think each of those games is in the 5 or $6 range. For the, uh, mm-hmm. for the for the digitally on the 3ds, which I think is a very good value proposition because all three of those games are great. Um, I wish I had more confidence that uh, the success of Link's, or at least the supposed success of Link's Awakening, would lead Nintendo to remake uh, those as well. Mm-hmm. But I think with the Capcom having been the developer, that's probably going to be a a bit of a legal knot to untangle. Maybe I mean I'm sure that they have. Uh... I'm sure that Nintendo has some level of control over the Zelda intellectual property, but they would at the very least have to acknowledge all the Capcom developers in the credits. I don't know mm-hmm. what kind of legal issues would surround that, but we're going to I want to put a I want to table that conversation for now because I do want to bring up the the future of 2D Zelda a little bit later in this podcast. But um I mean I don't think the Eagles Tower is any of our favorite dungeons unless uh, unless Mike is about to shock me with a revelation otherwise a revelation otherwise. But uh, there are eight dungeons dungeons in this game, and you basically have to proceed through them in a, li- in a linear ma- manner to unlock some story locks and to uh, fi- you know find items that are required for exploring more of the island. But do any of us have a favorite dungeon that they want to bring up? I really like Kiki Cavern. Mm-hmm. I like every uh, Kiki Cavern's a great dungeon, and not, it's not just a great dungeon; it also has a great lead up to the dungeon. Um, yeah, oh, having, yeah, Pr- yeah, Prince Richard from uh, For Whom the Frog Tells. <laughs> yeah, which is a uh, which is a nice. Um, obviously, they kept everything from the original, but it's it's mm-hmm. good to see him in three D form. Yeah, he looks He's so sparkly now. Yeah, he looks more like he does on the cover art for his old game than you know a like a like a you know a goofier version of Link with darker hair and pointy shoes. <laughs> but the whole lead up to it, like not doing that, and then going through the, his backyard, which is a uh, just would be a nightmare to you know mow 
and the the castle it's it's such it's a great setup to get to the cavern and then you do and it's uh it's just a really good dungeon design i think anyway i i don't know if i have a favorite dungeon i think i have a favorite sequence and it's probably an obvious one but i i do like i do like the part where marin's following you and will sometimes comment on stuff you do well, I mean, um, I, I think it, that scene begins a little before that, where you you need Marin to pro, to find Marin to progress in the story, and you have this really adorable sit down with her on the shore, where she oh, uh, yeah. where, where she dreams of she tells you that she dreams of leaving the island and being free like a seagull when everyone else on the island doesn't even understand the concept of outside, <laughs> and then there's a moment where you, it says you got Marin and you hold her over your head like you just found fifty rupees or something. Yes. <laughs> sort of related to that and maybe I'm late in noticing this but I discovered something in this playthrough that I didn't ever know in the original when you have Bow Wow with you early on mm-hmm. um, I was just kind of going walking around wherever I could get to on the map and I never saw his interaction with the monkey before oh because the, mo- you, the monkey outside yeah, the castle yeah if you go over I mean if you guys know this then you know you can stop me but yeah, if you go to the monkey where you have Bow Wow with you, because you're not supposed to be there yet or talking to him, uh, the monkey just looks at him and is like, okay, hey, you want to fight Mutt? And like they start like fighting each other. Wow, I, I have no idea if that's in the original Game Boy version or not, but that, that's a, that's pretty fascinating. It was so funny. Like, Bow Wow tries to bite him and he jumps out of the way and he just, you know, he's like taunting him. Like, come on. Well, that is a, I know that is a Japanese expression. Like, if people fight like dogs and monkeys is, is almost the Japanese version of saying people fight like cats and dogs. And I, I only I only know that from, you know, manga and anime. So that's that's not a real knowledge. But it's maybe they're just you know adapting that old uh, Japanese maybe. saying. But yeah, I, I think they did add more interactions with Bow Wow and Marin for when they're following you in the Switch version because I, I I haven't seen it, but I saw like uh, I saw previews of YouTube videos. Um, Marin commenting on new things in Switch Link's Awakening, uh, things of that nature. But I, I, I don't actually know how many of those there are. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't but know also, there was many more. But also, speaking of what, what Marin does in, the, does in the story for you, this is the only Zelda game with an animal village. What's up with that? Hmm. <laughs> totally normal village populated by bunnies and crocodiles and goats. It's almost like it's a dream. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only Zelda game with Goombas. Yeah. I mean, that's really just the tip of, like, what we were going to talk about in terms of, like, weirdness. Like, the the overall cast in this game. There's the village. There's... I mean, Mr. Wright is from SimCity. Right. Um, that's, that's true. There's mm-hmm. so many just strange characters that somehow all work in this world. And uh, and when the goat lady gives you a photo to give to Mr. Wright, it's a photo <laughs> of Princess Toadstool. Not, not, not the princess in this series, a princess in a different series. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're going Toadstool now. You're going old school. Oh, well, toad, toadstool rhymes with old school, so that's just that's just how I thought about it. Ah, and, okay. and Taron sort of resembles one of the Mario brothers. I'm not saying he's a Mario brother, but he does eat uh, mushrooms and turn into raccoon. Oh, he's totally <laughs> Mario. Just like what's his face on the mountain is Luigi. Yeah, uh, Luigi yeah. with as much snow and love of roosters. Yes. <laughs> but but it's it, this is just a, re- a really goofy game that I think that the. Uh, the developers inserted their own senses of humor and just absurd ideas in ways that I don't, I'm not going to say it fits together like a beautiful puzzle, but it, you know, like the, the, the odd bits stick out and are endearing and not annoying. Um, I mean, I mean, carry a flying rooster across an abyss and 
pastiches of Mario and Zelda and, and I'm sorry, Mario and Toadstool and SimCity and For Whom the Frog Tolls characters sneaking yeah. around. It's Oh, and geez, the, uh, the, the frog from the end of uh, Super Mario 2 teaches you the third song. Oh, yes, Wart. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. um, whatever his name is now. This is basically the first Smash Brothers, really. <laughs> More or less, yeah. You have, you have a crocodile on the beach who likes to eat canned dog food, and then oh. I assume his cousin, who's an artist <laughs> painting a hippo. I remember reading that the uh, scenario designer was a big fan of Twin Peaks, and that really played huh. into how the game... Uh, the game got pulled together with dreams and the, the town and everyone being a little suspicious of Link. And, um, uh, and, and Twin Peaks airing in the early 90s, the, the timeline fits, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I I believe it. And it's it's kind of, I mean, Zelda does have a sense of humor, but this is the first game that had, at least in my mind, had that kind of weird, quirky sense of humor that kind of started to get put into future Zelda games. Because, I mean, I, lo- I love Link to the Past, but it is a pretty straight-laced game in my mind. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, compared to the nonsense that happens in, uh, I don't know, like like with a lot of the quirky villagers in the 3D Zeldas and uh, the entire character of Tingle in later games, like that, uh, the first three Zelda games are a little humorless compared to what we th- the, a lot of the oddities that we think of as being part of traditional Zelda now. And this, yeah, this, this might have been the first Zelda game that allowed the, you know, that that really had some jokes in it. As I understand, it's because the development team just could do whatever the hell they wanted. They, no one was looking over their shoulder because it was for Game Boy and nobody at Nintendo cared. So they could kind of do whatever they wanted. And when you give, sometimes when you give artists that kind of freedom, they come up with something remarkable. And sometimes they come up with absolute garbage. But in this particular case, it was a masterpiece. Yeah. And uh, using Marin to awake a sleeping walrus that knocks itself out and, fl- and flops overboard uh, is a totally normal feeling plot point in this game, but would not have worked at all in A Link to the Past. Yeah, that's and, true. And uh, that you know gives way to goofy nonsense in future Zelda games, like the oh I don't know, like the uh, the game room proctor in. Wind Waker that goes sploosh whenever you uh, whenever you sink a battleship. <laughs> yeah, like, like like Zelda has a goofiness to its tone, or at least to its cast nowadays, that probably originated somewhat in Link's Awakening. I, I buy that. Yeah, it's. I mean, we were talking about how like this this island doesn't really. There are so many things that stick out that don't really make sense, and like was it Alice in Wonderland? I think it was the idea that. A world doesn't need to – a world just needs to be consistent in order for the audience to buy it and to buy it actually existing. And I feel like this island, everything in it feels like it should be on that island. Everything on the island makes sense within the context of that island. Um, part of the context of the island is that it's a weird dream someone's having. and. Yeah like weird things happen in dreams and that makes a lot of the weirdnesses of this game I think more acceptable and I've mentioned this in previous podcasts I will suspend my disbelief so easily that it is a little ridiculous but uh, so I have no problem believing crazy stuff happening in a video game but I think that this dream space and by setting a weird tone early uh, allows Link's Awakening to get away with a lot in a way that's very fun and, and, and possibly carried over to other Zelda games Oh, let's see. Um, we're, we're, I guess, near the end game now. Uh, uh, after you do the eight dungeons, you go into an egg, wake the wind fish using the, uh, the code that you got from, a magnifi- from reading a book with a magnifying glass that you get at the end of the trading quest. 
And oh, be... that is that the trading quest is an interesting is an yeah. interesting mechanic in this game. And, and another one that was uh, adapted in future Zelda games. That's true. And you can't even I... go into a you know go into game FAQs to check the code because it's 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 something like it's a, it's like one of eight different codes and depending on you know that's randomly determined at the beginning of your save file so it's it's not always exactly the same direction through the final dungeon so, so oh, you, yeah yeah so you need that magnifying glass uh in every playthrough but uh well, and and then you 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 fight a nightmare that seems like a combination of a bunch of older Zelda bosses plus the like you know plus some of the dark matter stuff from a few Kirby games <laughs> at least to me it does <laughs> um and then you wake a windfish which is a big shiny colorful whale and you and uh, at the Co- end of covered the, in tapestries yeah yeah covered in some kind of yeah some kind of tattoo or some kind of uh some kind of mural maybe and uh, and the the windfish thanks you for your service, and you end up wo- and you wake up on your little boat that you were at at the very beginning of the game. And uh, maybe one of the one of the earliest cases I know of of trying to complete a uh, well, well, not not the earliest case I know of because I mean Metroid did this, but the, having a special mm-hmm. condition to fulfill to see a, a change in the ending is if you beat the game with zero deaths, you'll see uh, sort of Marin fading into the background and then becoming a seagull flying free at the end. Which is much more skill gracefully handled in the remake than in the original, where you saw sort of an awkward Marin with wings flo- uh, floating across the screen. <laughs> yeah, um, like when I when I saw that on the Game Boy one, I didn't really think much of it. It's like, okay, they just put Marin over the end. I didn't know what the implication was supposed to be. Now, the, the, I, I I think the implication is that uh, they, like the spirit of Marin lives on in a seagull, perhaps, or maybe it was, a, or maybe Marin from the beginning was a seagull trapped uh, trapped in the windfish's dream. Um, but like it, it's it seems strange in the Game Boy version and much more sensible in the Switch version, even though it's you know it's uh, foreshadowed equally in both versions. I, I just thought that it was handled very nicely in the end credits this time. I agree, and I think yeah. the cool I think the cool thing about the both the opening sequence and the uh, the end sequence in this is. Link is animated in his Link to the Past style, and then yeah. as soon as he's in the dream, he's in this you know artificial plasticky land. I I like that the difference between him being awake and him being asleep in the way uh, the world looks. Yeah, that that's also I think attached to him being in a dream space. Like everything yeah. around him looks a little different, a little off in the dream spaces. Like he's he's in his less. Uh, you know, less humanoid. Ver- uh, he's in a less humanoid version of himself now because of the dream and because he's fitting in alongside the world. It, it, it all fits. I think the ending to this game is, I mean, that's a great ending, but I always thought there's a genuinely kind of almost a chilling moment where the windfish thanks you and then he starts waking up and you start seeing... Yeah, everything fade like, away. The townsfolk and these people that you've gotten to know and help and they are just vanishing. And you kind of feel like, oh, I guess I'm responsible for that. Yeah, that's a that's a you're a bit of a Thanos moment even uh, just just watching everything sort of fade away, but the uh, Marvel spoilers I guess. But, yeah, it was inevitable. But the, the uh, like, it, it, I mean, it is a little chilling, but in, in a way, uh, I mean, that's just the nature of dreams. Dreams are ephemeral, and um, and sort of realizing that this island was a dream and that everyone was going to disappear is is, but that's okay because you'll still remember Marin. And you'll still remember this adventure. I, I I don't know. I think that's just a little bit of commentary on the nature of dreams, and also just you know trying to trying to make this sort of something beautiful that happened, and not something that you destroyed necessarily. 
is, is the feeling I get from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can completely understand that. I just think it was a very smart move of the of the scenario writers to be showing like the scenes of the townspeople doing yeah. their day to day lives and just living their lives. The kids playing, uh, Talon digging up mushrooms, and then just fading to white, mm-hmm. like that. That is kind of a, it's kind of a chilling moment. Like it's, uh, a, it's a powerful moment. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the first game that made me cry. Yeah. I'll, I'll admit that. <laughs> I no, think, I don't think I cried at this one. I mean, I, I've I've cried at video games, and I wasn't even on the Lufia Two podcast, and I cried thinking about the ending of that game. This is such a weird Zelda game. It's it's not in Hyrule. There's no Zelda, but it's it, it's been a lasting fan favorite for all these decades, in spite of its weirdness and its differences. And I, again, I said this at the beginning of the podcast, I think it was the perfect time for a remake. It's been over 25 years, and there was almost universal enthusiasm when I heard the remake happen. Yep. Yeah, it's beloved. And when was the announcement? It was maybe middle of, 20, of 2018? No, I think it was just beginning of this year. Beginning of this year? Yeah. Okay, I know. I know yeah, it was like I, February I, or March. Okay, I know it was after I played, after we had Zelda Month, because otherwise we would have had an entire episode talking about this remake. I but, think was it was it announced the same at the same time as Cadence of Hyrule? Maybe I don't mm. know. For some reason, I had it in my head that it was at, uh, that it was in the second half of 2018, but I could be wrong. I'd have to I'd have to do some more research. But 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 I think the uh, the um, the fan response to the announcement was universally enthusiastic, and uh, the response to the remake now that it's in the wild is not universally enthusiastic, but but pretty damn positive. And uh, that's you know that just that just gladdens my heart. I have a lot of nostalgia for this game, and I thought the remake was both uh, was fun and beautiful and respectful. I agree. It's nice when nostalgia turns out to be, I guess, real. It turns out to be justified. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you, justified. Yeah. You feel like um you you have nostalgia, and then you try to re-experience it, and you're uh you feel reaffirmed instead of disappointed, and that that's a great feeling. Yeah, and I mean it's it's a shame when you watch a tele like a cartoon show you watched when you were a kid and you're like, oh, this is this is dreadful. Uh, but oh, yeah. the feeling when you watch a television show or a cartoon that you loved as a kid, and not only does it hold up, it actually is better. Like I don't know, Gargoyles, for example, or uh, or a reboot. Like those shows work as an adult, and I can enjoy uh, them on a new level uh, now. The, the three the three D CGI and reboot is. Mm. First two seasons, yes. I would argue by the third season, it actually becomes watchable again. Uh, this might get some people upset, but my version of that is watching Batman the Animated Series and being surprised at how good it was, and then watching, oh, the, and then watching the X-Men Animated Series, which is a few years older than Batman, and being just, mm, I don't know, I'm, I'm less certain about this one. <laughs> that X-Men and... opening theme song is still a banger, but the, the actual <laughs> content of the, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the animation is less impressive than that uh, than that killer theme (laughs) which is you know maybe it's okay to let the past live in the past but uh in this situation i was happy from for this link from the past to transition so beautifully Mm. into the present this this feels like good nostalgia reaffirmed and not good and not good nostalgia that that is you know diminished now it's uh this is a great game to begin with and the remake is also great, and almost all the changes are great. Uh, I just my only reservations are with that Dante side quest. That's that's my uh, fifteen second review, and there's a much better version of that review on the website written by you, Jonathan. Yeah, I loved it. Obviously, I mean, it might have gotten an extra point or two, maybe if it didn't have the dungeon editor. <laughs> but 
the reality is it was still a great game even with it so like i i i think it i think it was a fantastic game yeah. I, it was it was such a pleasure to review it and to uh get thoughts down on paper that i've had ever since i was a little kid really word and um, i i don't know if i should mention this or not but uh, the complaints i've heard the most about this game are uh, a few technical issues transitioning between screens and annoyances with the uh, the dante side quest and also the price point um it's a full mm. 60 dollars american which uh again like how much how much games should cost uh what makes a game worth like 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 do you want to like translate hours into dollars or does a uh, does an experience a short experience is that is that as important as a as a good long experience i don't want to have that discussion now but some people felt a little sticker shock for having a game boy a remake of a game boy game go for the full 60 and uh my brief thoughts on that are i was going to play this game anyway so they like i made the value judgment and i have disposable income so i i bought it maybe 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 that just makes me a sheep but uh, mm-hmm. but but also I, mean, I think that that's just how much Switch games cost. Like they, they uh, the Switch is sort of uniting the um, the Nintendo handheld and Nintendo console games that used to be on roughly separate tracks, and and now they're going to make most, if not all, Switch games sixty, especially the ones for for big Nintendo franchises. So and that's Nintendo. Yeah, exactly. But but some of it's too about like that I've seen online is about the hours. Because apparently there's a certain number of hours that are worth sixty dollars. Yeah, and this this is, I mean, yes, it's shorter than Breath of the Wild, but like every Zelda game is shorter than Breath of the Wild. But this was like a standard length for a Zelda game. Like up until about mm-hmm. Twilight Princess, they were all you know, ten yeah. twenty hours, depending on how much you wanted to spend with it. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't. I don't care. I, like, I, I, me, I also, it's like I if also, it's a good game. I I think it's pretty silly to like say that cert- that uh, a game should be a certain number of hours if it costs a certain number of dollars. Like, uh, one of my favorite games of the whole year is Devil May Cry 5, and that game was also $60, and probably about the same length as Link's Awakening, or a little, maybe even a little shorter. I mean... I think there's also a perspective. I think there's also a perspective that it's not just that it's a remake of a Game Boy game. It's also a top-down Zelda game. Like, if they had remade... If this was a 3D remake, I don't know if they would have the same complaints about it i think there's a certain it, it, a game feels more expensive it's fu- if it's fully realized 3d to some yeah yeah it could be yeah even though this is a 3d beautifully designed beautifully uh rendered game yeah, yeah I, it's not like they reused any assets here and i hate to go back into some tenets of basic economics but you can't measure how much you like something there are no units for utility and i think that how much you like or enjoy an experience is uh, not something you can quantify and as such shouldn't be attached to a specific price or value. And uh, But people have their own opinions about that, and, that, and we, that's not a discussion that we need to have. But one discussion <laughs> I do want to have is talking a little bit about the future of 3D and 2D Zelda. Um, now, oversimplifying things a little bit, we've been in a pattern of 2D, 3D, 2D, 3D. Uh, because uh, several years ago, in 2012 or 2013, we had Link Between Worlds. And then we had Breath of the Wild, and now we have this Link's Awakening remake, and we have uh, the possibly not t- not completely titled yet Breath of the Wild two happening next, presumably. I hear um, it's in development. Yes, <laughs> but and uh, and again, without really any real knowledge of the future of Zelda, I kind of like that two D three D two D three D pattern a lot because it feels like we're getting, uh, <laughs> with apologies to A Link Between Worlds, the best of both worlds. 
of uh of getting you know big 3d experiences and maybe slightly lower budget but still beautiful and cool and interesting 2d experiences because i'm I, I mean full disclosure link between worlds might be my favorite zelda game ever because it just it is it, just it's such a cool interpretation of 2d zelda and a reinterpretation of the world of link to the past which is another favorite uh, of mine so uh do, do you think that nintendo will sustain like alternating between 2D and 3D or at least developing in both of those spaces or I mean do you think that all bets are off when Breath of the Wild 2 sells 14 million copies in its first three days hmm I think that I mean I I actually agree with you I kind of like the 2D 3D 2D 3D I think it's a a smart way to go about it honoring both sides and both styles of Zelda game I could be completely wrong about this because they probably have the next 2D game already in development, but I think that there's so much buzz right now going on about uh, Breath of the Wild 2. I don't feel like they would want to step on that with a 2D game. I feel like they might want to build up more anticipation to Breath of the Wild 2. Yeah. I don't, you know what? What's weird about it is that since you know the Game Boy, since the late 80s, Nintendo has always had a console and a handheld. So it always made sense that you'd put the 2D stuff on the handheld, but now they're all one. So yeah, the tracks merge. Yeah, so like I could see them alternating, but yeah, I don't think it would be until after the Breath of the Wild sequel. Mm. Um, and you know, would it be, or unless in the meantime they you know suddenly port a Link Between Worlds Switch, which I would buy. I would buy that too. Yeah. yeah. And following up on that, um. Let's assume that the game after Breath of the Wild 2 is a 2D Zelda on the Switch. Uh, do you think it should be a remake of a of an older Zelda game, or a like a direct sequel like uh, Breath like Link Between Worlds, or a standalone new thing? Which of those three doors do you like best? I feel like Link Between Worlds was almost a. I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I absolutely it's, love it with you on that completely. It, but it was it's, a, it's, a it's pseudo not, remake of no, Link to the Past. I, I would not call it a remake. It's a reinterpretation of that world, and they recreate parts of it, parts of it wholesale, like a lot of the world map. But none of the dungeons are the same. Uh, like none of the story is the same. It's it's a it's a new game that reinterprets oh. that setting. But I, I, I don't. I, 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 I absolutely agree it. with you. It is a new game, but it does reuse. Well, it reuses the world and it reuses the character designs, minus the pink hair, um, and that—that's not a complaint, by the way, at yeah, all. I, I think I what understand, they... but I—but I still think that remake like Link, like Link's Awakening, and reinterpretation like Link's like Link Between Worlds are two different things. Okay. But uh, let's say that there's a new—we know there's a 2D Zelda coming out after Breath of the Wild. Which of those do you like best? Remake, reinterpretation, or st- or new standalone? I'd like to see a remake of the first two. Because oh, they did that, they did that with Metroid. Zero Mission made the first Metroid way more accessible and playable. Uh, Re- Return of Samus did the same for Metroid Two. It, it was not like this remake for Link's Awakening. Like they, they added stuff and really yeah, changed they, it and yeah, modernized it. They made it. a lot more changes in that game. And I think Zelda One and Two could both stand to get that kind of remake. I think that would you know be what? really interesting. Mike, I think you're onto something. In fact, I think that it would be really smart for Nintendo to throw a curveball and not just go 2D, but maybe 2D side scroller. <laughs> um, uh, like have a remake of Zelda 2 that maintains the 2D side scroller elements. I think it would be a cool idea. I, I think. Oh yeah. When I say make, remake of Zelda 2, I mean like keep it side scrolling. If they, yeah. if they make that game control better, then I would actually be interested in replaying it because that's not a. I have never beaten uh, Adventure of Link, but I'm not interested in revisiting it either. 
Well, I think they could really pull in. I mean, if they wanted to go uh, go from some of their other franchises, they could pull a lot of what they've learned over the last 20 years with Metroid hmm. into a remake of uh, Zelda 2. That is interesting. And, you oh, yeah. know, I, I, mean... I, I forget who said this, but I remember reading that um, Breath of the Wild is the first game that delivered on the promise of t- true nonlinearity since the first Zelda, because Zelda 1 is almost does really sort of dump you into a sandbox without really, without much direction. And uh, Breath of the Wild preserves that true nonlinearity better than any other game that came in between those two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a remake of Zelda 1, that's almost Breath of the Wild-like in, in, in how little the game communicates to you. I guess I, I've used the word signposting or breadcrumbs probably five times in this podcast already. But, like, I, I almost, like, making a true Zelda Dark Souls that dumps you into a world with no direction, but have that be a remake of Zelda 1. That, that's fascinating to me. I think that's a really cool idea. I mean, what? do you remember the? Do you remember with the um, uh, Nintendo release footage of the prototype of uh, Breath of the Wild that was in, like, the Zelda 1 style? Oh, shoot. Uh, I, I don't think I do, but I, I could probably dig it up. If I oh, I remember oh, yeah, that. Like how they use, they use the Zelda 1 style thing to, like, plan out their areas and stuff. Yeah, and they used it to like test mechanics and test yeah. like cutting down trees and laying things. I think, I mean, this is obviously probably not the route they'll go, but I think what would be really cool is if they took Legend of Zelda, like the first Legend of Zelda, and they started it off almost almost the exact same game, but instead of having a second quest where everything is uh, everything is uh, rearranged, they open the world up even more. Like I would love to see a true retro style Legend of Zelda game to the scale of a modern. Zelda game. That would be interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, going back to the choices I made earlier, what I really would want to see is a new standalone 2D game, because mm. I, I think I really value the like what Link's Awakening and the Oracle Duo did uh, in like creating a really interesting new world that feels separate from 3D Zelda, but explores the mechanics of 2D Zelda a lot. Uh, I would be more interested in that than in a remake of Minish Cap or one of the Oracle games, just because I mean I've already played those, and uh, yeah. and um, and something truly new that's in this 2D Zelda uh, framework that I love would be really exciting. And I mean, of course, I would buy a remake of the Oracle Duo because I love them. But I, I sort of hope that Nintendo avoids not really a trap, but but avoids the rut of just using 2D games to remake old ones. I think you're right, and I mean, it wouldn't even make sense to... The reason why the graphic style in the Link's uh, Awakening remake, it works so well, is because it is a dream. I don't think they could take that same graphic style and like just put it on top of seasons or ages, and it, 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 I don't feel like it would make sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't want them to make another game that looks like Link's Awakening. I want them to do a 2D Zelda that is sort of designed and concepted from the ground up. And I, I know they can do that, but I, I really have no idea what they will do after Breath of the Wild 2. Because, I mean, beyond that, I don't think we have any uh, real Zelda knowledge of what's coming next. Uh, they, they contracted out a Zelda game with the um, with that uh, that Cadence of Hyrule um, number from earlier this year. And that's exciting yeah. That's exciting to me that maybe maybe some developers outside of Nintendo will get to interpret Zelda in their way. The, the future of Zelda is bright and exciting. Um, because, because I mean, I mean, what's the track record? The the recent track record we have is, um, Link Between Worlds, Breath of the Wild, Cadence of Hyrule, and Link's Awakening. Those are four 
interesting, unique, cool Zelda games that are very different from each other. So I think that there's a, that if Zelda optimism is justified right now, and that that's that's pretty exciting. You know what? I'm gonna actually say I'm gonna take back what I said about uh, them not wanting to stomp on the Breath of the Wild two uh, hype. I think I genuinely think that given its presence in this game, I think they are heading towards a Zelda maker. That that would be interesting. Yeah. That is that is interesting, and I think very possible because both because of uh, Mario Maker existing and uh, this Dante side quest existing, that is a totally reasonable guess. But I I, I don't have any. I'm not going to make a prediction. I I just know that I like almost every Zelda game that I've played, and uh, to be optimistic about the future of Zelda is very very fair. Agreed. Yeah. Am I am I remembering wrong? Because I know there. Their timeline for mobile games kind of like isn't what it was supposed oh, to be. But was there not we, supposed we, to be a we, Zelda we mobile might, game? We might need an entire episode just to talk about timelines in Zelda. No, no, no. <laughs> like real life timelines. Like I, they are supposed to be doing some kind of Zelda mobile game, right? I don't know what it's going to be. Oh, I mean, probably. There's a, we already have these uh, Fire Emblem and Animal Crossing and Mario ones, and uh, there was a recent Mario Kart mobile game even. So it's yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's on the cards somewhere. I'm and, curious what that will end up being. I'm trying to figure out how they would how they would bring that this style of game over. I mean, Mario. I actually loved Mario Run. I thought it was a fun game. Yeah. Um, I tried playing Mario Kart uh, on my iPhone for like 15, 20 minutes the so other day, and uh, oh, head. it did not work for me at all. One of my friends uh, was playing that game for probably 45 minutes to an hour and he said it was the hottest his iphone had ever felt in his hand (laughs) and this is a guy who uh plays a lot of mobile gacha games and and that ilk so i that made me concerned hearing that come from him of all people but if we're talking about mario run and uh and like iphones burning our hands maybe it's the end of the episode uh, thank you so much, Mike, for um, for making a rare appearance on the podcast. It's always nice talking to you. And thank you, Jono, for making your first retro encounter appearance. That was it was a delight meeting you and talking to you. And uh, same. Yeah, and, and all three of us love Zelda: Link's Awakening, so it was an easy discussion to have, at least. <laughs> but I think, uh, but I think, very, very worth it because um, this is the most present Link's Awakening will be in in the minds of Nintendo fans you know, in the release window of the remake. This was the perfect opportunity to have this discussion. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, thank you also to li- to you listeners for uh, keeping up with us for over an hour. Uh, this was a lot of fun to record, and I hope it was fun for you to listen to as well. Uh, let's talk about the future of Retro Encounter a little bit. Um, next week, we're having our first episode on Grandia. That is, uh, you know, uh, an- enough time for people to-, to have played the recent ports of Grandia to Switch, and I think to also soon to PC if it's not already out. I'd have to check some numbers on that. But we are having two episodes on Grandia in the rest of October. There's going to be one other October episode that I have not totally nailed down yet. Uh, but listeners, uh, RPG Fan has a lot of other wonderful content for you to explore, not just Retro Encounter. Um, you can, uh, there are, RPG Fan has forums, Twitter, a Facebook page, a Discord server, an Instagram page, a, uh, tw- a Twitch channel with something playing basically every day, and two other fine podcasts, Random Encounter and... You know, Mike, I, I I forgot the other podcast we host. It, it seems like it was a dream that I once had. Oh well, right now we're partnering with Phoenix Edge. That's true. Phoenix that must Edge. be the one you're thinking of. Phoenix Definitely Edge not the music our... podcast. <laughs> 
uh, we used to have a, mu- a music podcast, and it's uh, it's TBD um, if and when it'll uh, return to your podcast feeds. But we are, are we are pon- uh, we are partners with Phoenix Edge, a YouTube hosted podcast hosted by Robert Hatfield, and they do a lot of good work on their podcast, uh, especially mostly pertaining to current events. They do a lot of good work. So uh, please leave reviews and listen to Retro Encounter, Random Encounter, Rhythm Encounter, and Phoenix Edge. Uh, if you want to give us feedback directly, the best way to do so is to email retro at rpgfan.com. You can also uh, go to all of those RPG fan pages that I mentioned earlier. But if you want to reach us individually, what's the best way to do so, starting with you, Mike? Uh, well, actually, for the first time in ages, I'm using Twitter again. So you can. Yeah, it's a little me weird. At... I know, it's strange, huh? Um, I'm at uh, Valkyrie Studio on Twitter. Oh, yeah, now I'm definitely living in a dream. Mike's been on Twitter for weeks. It's weird. And uh, Jono, what's the best way for the listeners to reach you directly? Uh, probably Twitter as well. It's uh, at Jono underscore Logan. All right. And listeners, uh, Twitter is probably the, also the easiest way to find me. I am at The Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times. I'm also Monsoon Mike on Discord and Monsoon on RPG fans' uh, forums, which I have not posted on in probably months. Um, so I think I think we did it. It's uh, It's time to, you know... Uh, break out the cello and wake up from this dream. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.